Welcome to Trending in Education. This is Mike Palmer. I'm really pleased today to be joined by Chester E. Finn Jr., who is a distinguished senior fellow and president emeritus at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's written a book called Assessing the Nation's Report Card, Challenges and Choices for the NAEP. I'm extremely pleased to be joined by Chester today. Chester, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be with you. You're someone who's been with the NAEP really since its founding. It is understood as the nation's report card. We're going to want to understand how that report card's doing. Before we do that, we always start with our guest's origin story. I know you have a pretty epic one to share, so hopefully we get enough of it in there. But can you catch our listeners up on who you are and how you got to this point in your professional life? Yeah, we'll start with the fact that I'm 78 years old and I've been working in the education field for, I don't know, 55 years or something. Wow. Going back to LBJ when I was an undergraduate, more or less tempting me into this field because of his promise that we could end poverty by providing better education for poor kids. Yeah. Then I fell into the orbit of the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan, senator from New York, and he was my graduate school advisor, and I worked with him in three different places, in D.C. twice and in India once. Just jumping in real quick, a delightful train station now in his honor. I was able to take it down to Washington, D.C. recently. It's a delightful experience. Moynihan Station is, was a legacy as part of his effort to, to compensate for the Terrible destruction of the great Pennsylvania station. And so they've taken part of the old uh, post office building across the street and turned it into a, like, what they call it, Moynihan Station. It's very nice. Anyway, I, I went from him to being assistant secretary of education in the Reagan administration, professor at Vanderbilt, various think tanks, Maryland State Board of Education, National Assessment Governing Board in its first years, including chairman for a couple of years, and recently the Fordham Institute and the Stanford Connection, bunch of books, and then the challenges of being a parent and a grandparent and trying to get them educated. Right, right. I mean, I have a four-year-old, a soon-to-be four-year-old. Don't even get me started on that. But the NAEP is really the focus of the book, and I, I will confess that I've talked about the NAEP in the past, but I didn't really understand it until I read the book and started ramping up for this, it's really an interesting instrument known as the nation's report card. You've been there from the ground floor. The book does a really great job telling the story, telling the history of the NAEP. Can you give us a condensed version of the test, how it came to be and uh, how it sure. got to where we are today? Well, the first half of the book is basically history. And the second half of the book is basically issues and challenges and future options, opportunities. The History is, I mean, we're talking about more than 50 years now. This goes back to the 1960s. Yeah. The then U.S. Commissioner of Education, we didn't have a, a Secretary of Education in those days, Francis Keppel, former Dean of the Harvard Ed School, realized that he had lots of quantitative data about American education, but he had absolutely no information about whether kids were learning anything. Mm -hmm. And he thought this was a problem. Uh, so he asked an eminent Stanford psychologist named Ralph Tyler, was there any way to find out whether kids were learning anything? And this is the mid-60s. And by 1969, 70, the first tests were being given for this sample test. This is not a, a census test. This is not the kind of test kids take at the end of the year for going from third grade to fourth grade, because it's only a sampling of kids. Originally, age groups, 9, 13, 17. Now it's predominantly grade levels, 4, 8, and 12. It's run by contractors for the federal government, originally the Education Commission of the States, known as ECS, 
since 1983, predominantly ETS, the Educational Testing Service. It has evolved over many stages, including the acquisition in the late 80s of an independent governing board known as the National Assessment Governing Board, the 26 members now, meant to make it independent to a degree of the federal government which pays for it. Since No Child Left Behind was enacted 20 years ago, uh, NAEP has been not just a national assessment, but has also provided data at the state level for 50 states. In that role, it serves as kind of an auditor, frankly, of the state tests. Are they telling the truth according to a national standard, which is really what's built into NAEP now, at least for reading and math. Yeah. And also over the years, I believe 27 big cities have joined in through something called the trial urban assessment. So we get data also in Cleveland and Baltimore and Chicago and Los Angeles and so on. Yeah. So that, that's what NAEP is. It's a, I frequently call it the most important test you've probably never heard of. Yeah. Because this is really not a household word. Yeah. And yet, if you're the president or a governor uh, or a state superintendent, this is actually, frankly, your best barometer of not just how kids are doing this year, but whether it's better or worse than, than two years ago or right. 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Also, NAEP has grown to 10 subjects, not just reading and math, though those are the core but also history, geography, and science, and even the arts. And so key point, you and I talked about this a minute ago, it is a low stakes test. No kid is affected by his score on NAEP. Right. No teacher is affected by her students' scores on NAEP. Right. No individual school is affected by how it, its kids do on NAEP. For the most part, no city or, or, or town or county is affected. But at the state level and the national level, we don't have a better measure or a more honest one because it really is a representative sample of the whole population, mm -hmm. as well as all the subgroups. NAEP is how we know whether the gaps between groups of kids are narrowing or widening. And that's really got in an equity era that's also, you could say, an excellence era. Mm -hmm. um, th this information is invaluable. And yeah. uh, Many challenges, many, many issues associated with keeping it going. But for 50 years, it's been going. Yeah. Better in my life in 1969, I might add. Wow. Without betraying my age, it is in fact older than me. And I'm no, I'm no spring chicken. So that's saying something. It's also really interesting in an age when standardized tests are very much front and center and folks are taking a lot of shots at them. It is interesting that those are, generally speaking, the high stakes tests that are more about the individual and frequently about comparing the individual to other individuals to get into a more selective college. There's a whole narrative around high stakes testing that I think it's easy to think of that as applying to all standardized tests. But it seems as though, and I'd love to get a little more of your perspective on this, it seems as though there might be some lessons to be learned from how the NAEP has continued and in some ways not provoked the backlash that we're seeing against some of the other standardized tests that are out there. Right. It doesn't have a backlash because it doesn't affect anybody's life directly or immediately. Yeah. I mean, we start high stakes testing in this country in many places in third grade, where we have a third grade reading test. If you don't pass it, you don't get to go to fourth grade. Right. And then right on up through entry into law school or medical school or something like that at, right. at, at the other end. So we, we, we do a lot of high stakes testing and I am, let me be clear, I am not against that at all, right. but, but Nate, by virtue of not having any direct effect on anybody has no reason for backlash. Now there's a little bit of a flip side problem here, which is, uh, if there are no consequences for anybody, why bother taking it? 
Yeah. I mean, what's the incentive to participate? So occasionally a state department of education has to cajole some of its schools into being willing to be part of the sample. Right. That kind of thing. But it's worked out there. The, the statistical uh, requirements for valid data are very high. So if you don't get enough of the schools in the chosen sample to participate in a given state or city, you won't have valid data. And the sampling is very scientific because you want to ultimately be able to compare, you know, black kids and white kids and brown kids and girls and boys and kids with disabilities and limited English proficiency and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And you get into the subgroups and you're talking about, let's say, Latino girls versus white girls. You're into small parts of the sample here. Yeah. So you got to do it pretty carefully and they've done it well. It's relatively expensive. It's a federally funded thing. It's vulnerable to all the potentially vulnerable to all the issues about a federal education program, but it's kept on. And obviously I'm, I'm a bit of a fan over the decades. Yeah. Yeah. And I would encourage folks to do a little more digging into this because it is an interesting story. And I think there's some lessons to be learned around how to navigate some of the complexity of this age. And it's interesting to see there's been 50 years of it thus far. And then in the second half of the book, you're more looking ahead to, let's say, the next 50 years, if we're trying to solve similar problems, try to understand how to benchmark where students are in terms of reading and math first, but then really across the full range of skills and competencies that are required in this day and age. It also is a place where there can be a little bit of immediacy bias, perhaps, around the latest results, where a lot of the benefit of 50 years is the longitudinal data and the idea that you can see longer-term trends. But especially in the last few years, where one of the terms that drives me a little batty is learning loss, which uh, I was appreciating setbacks and other language has been used around this because sometimes a, a name can stick. But there is a lot of response to this year's NAEP results, where Everyone's up in arms. Everyone's alarmed around the challenges that we're facing in light of the pandemic. Can you touch on that, both in terms of the short-term results, but then my takeaway from a lot of my research and prep here is that just be careful about over-indexing on something short-term when we really are still collecting the data and trying to understand the longer trend lines. Yeah, of course, like any education issue, where what's your what's the starting point for the comparison that you make right uh, until covid hit there was some slow gradual good news revealed by naep in grades 4 and 8 particularly in math and particularly for uh, poor kids and low achieving kids and minority kids there were gains especially mm-hmm. in math mm-hmm. 12th grade i have to say has been flat for a very long time on the naep results and that's its own issue mm-hmm. but the good news kind of came to an abrupt pause uh, when COVID hit. And so the two and three year NAEP data that we've seen in the last few months really have shown a significant decline from before COVID. Mm -hmm. And they are pretty, I would say alarming is the right word for how much damage COVID and school shutdowns and things did to student achievement in this country. I hope it is ready, beginning to pick back up again, but we, we won't know that for a while, obviously. We're seeing signals that it's beginning to pick up in some places, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so you can use NAEP data to go back to 1970 in some subjects at some levels. You can also use it to compare in a 2018 with 2022 and see how we've been doing over the last four years. 
Right. I, I should have said earlier that that Nate doesn't explain why anything happened. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating to people because it, it doesn't give causal information. It only tells you, it's like putting a thermometer in your mouth and it, it tells you you got 103. Right. It doesn't tell you why. It just tells you got a fever. That's all. We're in the midst of something. What do we do now, I guess, is the question that it poses to us. And then at the same time, some things are already in flight where a lot of the interventions that have come since the pandemic hit are now likely to have some impact on the next administration of the NAEP. We're going to want to understand over time, is there a rebound back to that baseline trending slightly up? Or is this setback something that's actually sticking and we're seeing with multiple cohorts who are going through the test administration? Right. And there are all sorts of sidelines to this. This one's sort of funny slash not funny. Before COVID, NAEP was administered in odd numbered years, the second and fourth grade tests. And every two years, according to federal law in grades uh, four and eight in reading and math, well, they had to delay it a year because of COVID. That put it into an even-numbered year. Mm -hmm. So now the two-year data means that the results come out during an election year, oh. which means that the 2022 results came out a few weeks before the November election. Interesting. And the 2024 results, unless they change the schedule again, are going to come out shortly before the presidential election. Even though NAEP doesn't give causes, a lot of people want to read into it well, this shows the effect of the Trump administration and the Biden administration or the governor's right. administration, mm -hmm. good or bad. Right, right. Well, you know, governors and presidents don't have that much direct effect on what fourth graders are learning and reading. And yet people want to use it for this purpose. I actually suggested in a piece I wrote that they should go back to the odd year schedule just because of this. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think those types of insights are something that I really picked up throughout the book and throughout the history is that. There's been a lot of thoughtfulness in the path that NAEP has taken to be somewhat above politics or outside of politics. Yes. And I'd love to get a little more of your take on that, because that was one of the ahas that I'm taking away from this book, is that there are some tactics and approaches that can be successful despite the increased tendency to politicize a lot of this stuff. Right. And it's a very important and I think vulnerable point in time as the country comes apart over, over culture wars and political uh, schisms and things like that. Mm -hmm. Why should anybody trust NAEP is a fair question. And there are sort of two answers. One is that the statisticians and the test makers are very careful to ensure that the data are accurate and valid and the questions have all been screened for bias and so forth and so on. So what you might call scientific quality is one reason. Yep. The other reason is who decides what questions to ask? Who decides what's worth testing? Mm -hmm. And that's that gets you into curriculum issues. And it's complicated in a country where curriculum is all over the place, frankly. Yeah. yeah. And yet this is a national test. And so the kids in Portland, Oregon, and the kids in Portland, Maine, and the kids in Dallas, Texas are all going to be taking the same test, but are they learning the same stuff in school? Mm -hmm. uh, well, maybe, maybe not. So the, the building of these tests through what's called a framework as to what is the content of uh, eighth grade reading or fourth grade math takes, it's a very elaborate and drawn out process with million 
advisors, consultants, public feedback sessions, things like that. Yeah. But in the end, it belongs to this governing board. This 26 member governing board is their decision. And that is, and has been, and I think deserves some praise for this over the years, nonpartisan, bipartisan people of generally, it's representative of all sorts of different constituencies, educators, business leaders, governors, legislators, school board members, and so on. By and large, over the years, people have been able to check their affiliation at the door and function like a, like a statesman, mm-hmm. um, what's in the national interest and what is a reasonable consensus in fourth grade math. We're getting all this input. That early signs over the last few years that the culture wars are beginning to, to percolate into the governing board. Yeah. Uh, this came up in the new reading framework uh, a couple of years ago. It may come up in the, what they're working on right now, which is a new science framework. Yeah. I mean, just think the obvious question there, how much attention should the science test pay to climate change and global warming? Yeah. I mean, there's a question for you with no simple answer, honestly, much less what happens when they get back to history frameworks and civics frameworks and things like that. Right. So the ability of of NAEP to remain credible depends quite a lot on people believing that what's on the test is a reasonable national consensus. But just think of that phrase in, in, in 2022. Where do we find that these days? Right, right. But I mean, to the NAEP's credit, it's been able to navigate pretty effectively thus far. Yes. And, and I think there is the idea that without standards and without results, it's very difficult to have any data to support some of the decisions that need to be made around achievement gaps and access, equity, curriculum, design, a lot of these things, there needs to be some data, some things that people can agree to. And I guess to your previous point, people frequently are questioning facts. This goes back to to Daniel Moynihan, in fact, but it looks like the NAEP, at least so far, there's always the rejection of standardized testing, which is one critique that obviously needs to be addressed. But outside of that, the idea that there are standards and that those standards can help us make policy decisions and help us begin from a common understanding is hugely relevant. And that we can trust this as being legitimate and accurate. I mean, imagine going to the doctor and he's got no thermometer, no blood pressure device, no oxygen meter, no ability to run a blood test. How's he going to diagnose you? How's he going to cure you? Mm -hmm. Right, right. And then that being said, you're also very forthcoming about some of the challenges that the NAEP is facing now, some around technology, some around really the evolution of the culture, some of the things that we're talking about. But can you outline some of the challenges that you see on the horizon? They're spelled out pretty nicely in the book. Yeah, they come in all in all sorts from complicated technological stuff like how much of this should be in the cloud and how much of this should be digitized and should the kids be using their own devices when they take the test or should NAEP have its own set of devices that it schleps around from school to school, so on. To budget questions, it's expensive, for example, to do state-by-state testing. And so it's not done in geography and history and other subjects. And yet, don't you want to know, as the governor of Ohio or Massachusetts, how the kids in your state are doing geography and history? Well, right now, NAEP doesn't tell you that. But to add that is a budget item. It's also a sample size item. It's a burden on a federal agency that is not exactly overstaffed. 
-hmm. Contractors are expensive and probably semi, there is a close to monopoly among the NAEP contractors, which means that the government doesn't get the best price here because they all come in as kind of a coalition. And so it's expensive, gets more expensive than it should. There's the governing board issues that I mentioned and the risk of, of politicization. There's a whole set of other questions about, should there be a retail version of NAEP? Should right. uh, parents be able to get any satisfaction from the fact that their kid is participating in this mm -hmm. thing? Or if your kid is not, because he's not in the sample, should you be able to get a, a NAEP equivalent thing for your kid? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe not. We, also don't want it to turn into a high stakes thing. So right. the endless bickering over what to put in these frameworks, I've already mentioned that, but in an era of culture wars, that gets harder, not easier. Yeah. And test burden, how long should this test take for the kids that are in the sample? The adaptivity, you know, for those testing nerds out there. I'm in favor of adaptive. And yet one of NAEP's greatest assets is its trend lines, the ability to mm. compare this year with 10 years ago. Mm. If you make a big change in the way the test is done, mm -hmm. there is a serious risk of losing the trend because yeah. you no longer compare the results because so much has changed. I mean, Nate went recently went digital for test administration instead of paper and pencil. That took them years to work out. And even today, there's an argument over whether the shift to digital administration affected the trend line mm -hmm. in ways that it shouldn't, that right. it should not. Right. So when yeah. you make a change in how a test is administered, you alter the kid's experience of mm -hmm. taking the test. Yeah. So does that mean that the 2022 experience is similar enough to the 2012 experience that you can legitimately compare the scores? Yeah. What happens when you put a new framework in place? If the changes are huge from the previous framework, again, your trend line has to start over again. Well, on the one hand, that means you're keeping up with curriculum changes. Good. On the other hand, means you can no longer compare with, with 2010. Bad. Right. Uh, these are trade-offs and they're not simple. Yeah. Yeah. And the power of longitudinal data on the one hand versus the need to be responsive and to react to changes that are happening. That is the other thing that I was curious for your perspective. I like to talk a lot about the future of work and that leads to a lot of conversations around artificial intelligence and automation and, and the idea that we're training our kids for jobs that we don't even know what they'll be in the future. These tests, some of their benefit is the fact that there's, there's a line of sight all the way back to the late sixties in terms of what we were measuring then versus what we're measuring now. There's now a technology component to the NAEP that is emerging. I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on how the NAEP has made decisions to add things like technology and how folks who are thinking about these tests, how they're thinking about the future of work and the disruptions that we're seeing there. And of course, every, I'm going to call it curricular interest group, wants to have its own thing as part of NAEP. It mm -hmm. legitimizes it, it, it gives it status, it gives it visibility and so on. And sometimes it's really hard to test, frankly. I mean, the arts come into NAEP. And yeah, there's aspects of the arts that you can sort of easily test like art history or music appreciation. Right. But how do you test singing or dancing on a national sample-based test? Well, essentially impossible, frankly, mm -hmm. at least not with any validity as to the, as to the results. 
Mm-hmm. The NAEP is mostly hewed pretty close to traditional curricular top subjects. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. And at the 12th, especially at the 12th grade level, it could be doing a whole lot more with respect to the CTE world, the uh, career preparation world, mm-hmm. and the things that kids are or should be learning to advance themselves at, at the next level without necessarily going to a traditional academic college. Right. And NAEP doesn't do much to help in that regard today. Adding a technology piece to the assessment, as far as it can go, again, it's it's a, what can be tested on a screen, not what can be tested in a lab or in a workplace. So there are some inherent limitations. You know, we're up to 10 subjects now. They're not all tested every year. Some of them aren't tested nearly often enough. Some of them don't yield the 12th grade data or the state level data. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that gets into budget, it gets into sample size, it gets into all of those other issues of scale and scope. I would love to see a whole lot more attention paid to 12th graders, how they're doing at the end of high school mm-hmm. in a variety of subjects. I would love to see state level data at the end of 12th grade. Mm-hmm. If I were a governor, I'd want that more than I want eighth grade data, frankly. Yeah. But we're not doing it today. And then there's the other whole set of uh, things like can artificial intelligence come up with test questions for NAEP going forward and yes. maybe even make it cheaper than paying all those people at ETS to dream them up? Right, right. This chat GPT-3 is is wild, like the stuff that's coming out these days. And then also, you know, the cheating is from home is the whole other dimension that has opened up through artificial intelligence. It does make me wonder what a, what a home essay assignment will look like in the future in light of some of the new generative AI stuff that's coming out. Yes. It's going to be a big issue in the high stakes world with something like an advanced placement test. Yeah. Where kids have been taking them at home. And yet those are essay type uh, responses for the most part, and they should be. But whose essay is that? Exactly. (laughs) Although then I start thinking about the future of work and the kids who know how to use chat GPT-3, maybe they do deserve a little extra credit. So who knows? It's pretty complicated, Chester. This has been an amazing conversation. We're getting closer to time. I'd I'd love to conclude with maybe your concluding thoughts after this. But before we get there, is there anything else emerging? What do you think about in terms of the future of education that we haven't talked about that you think our listeners might benefit from? I have a hundred thoughts about the future of education. So I'm going to stick with, I think, the national assessment. Uh, Sure. uh, uh, It doesn't have any friends in Congress today. Mm. It needs them. It sometimes has friends in the executive branch. Mostly there's no NAEP lobby, except the companies that are contractors that, that get the money to do the work. This is an issue, and it's a good example of one of these low visibility things the government does that that nobody gets reelected to their seat in the House or the Senate in order to work on because it's so low visibility. So I think this is a, a challenge. I think the support for and kind of attention to credibility for this barometer of student learning is something that we really need to pay more attention to as a country. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Chester E. Finn Jr. is the president emeritus at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. The book is called Assessing the Nation's Report Card Challenges and Choices for the NAEP. It's been amazing to have Chester with us today. As folks go back to the rest of their lives, Chester, I always like to give uh, guests a chance for some parting thoughts. It's been a wonderful conversation. What are some takeaways for folks who stuck with us this far? 
Well, they care about education and they probably care about the country's future. And those are important things. If we care about education and the country's future, we got to do better by a whole bunch of kids than we're doing today. You could start with poor and minority kids, and you should, but you also have to go on to advanced learners and kids who aren't getting the challenge and stimulation that they need in order to become the scientists and space explorers uh, and inventors of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We've up and down the spectrum, I think, and value of something like national assessment is it keeps us informed up and down the spectrum. So let's keep that going, please. Fantastic stuff. Chester E. Finn Jr. Check him out. Check out the book is really an interesting read. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. My pleasure. Glad to be with you. And for our listeners, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please write us a review, share the good word, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. (laughs) 